Welcome. You're listening to At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income, currency, and commodity markets today. We are recording this on Tuesday, August 8th, and our comments today are based on, on our weekly publication from Friday, available to institutional clients of JP Morgan on JP Morgan Markets. I'm Srini Ramaswamy, co-head of U.S. Rate Strategy for J.P. Morgan, and today I am joined by my colleague Epek Ozil to discuss last week's wild ride in the U.S. rates and derivatives markets uh, and talk about some of our themes going forward. Epek, last week was pretty eventful in the market, so why don't you set the stage for our listeners a little bit? What are some of the most important developments that we saw last week? Um, sure. And I guess let me begin with one development that actually was not all that impactful, but I feel like we have to mention it nevertheless. Uh, the ratings agency Fitch downgraded the U.S. sovereign rating last week from AAA to AA+. I have to say the timing was a bit odd. It came close to Treasury's August refunding, but really there was not a lot of new information there. Um, Fitch is actually now the second agency to take down the U.S. rating a notch, but this comes 12 years after S&P downgraded the U.S. So we kind of see this as a bit like shining a torch to highlight something on a bright sunny day. And markets kind of reacted as such and looked past this downgrade last week. But there was actually a lot more things that happened. On the macro front, labor market as well as growth data continue to remain strong and our economists actually lifted their GDP forecasts. We are no longer calling for a recession. But at the same time, the SLUS data and SLUS is Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey. SLUS data suggests that the credit tightening we had anticipated after, after the banking crisis of March is in fact playing out. And last but not least, Treasury's refunding announcement pointed to more issuance than earlier expectations. All in all, this helped push yields sharply higher and the yield curve steepened significantly last week before retracing on Friday. I think that was enough action for one week, don't you, Srini? Yeah, uh, certainly that was a lot. Uh, but let's actually unpack this, uh, you know, maybe one at a time, starting with the macro outlook. Um, Long story short, the economy seems in a pretty pretty healthy state, uh, at least on a spot basis. Um, you know, uh, GDP is holding up well. Our economists have revised GDP up and are no longer calling for a recession. Uh, and the payrolls report on Friday was pretty solid, showing low unemployment and an overall sort of healthy labor market. Uh, but if that's the current state of the market and it looks pretty healthy, there are forward-looking concerns, um, in particular, you know, the, the, um, the, the SLUS data that, uh, that EPEC referred to, that shows considerable tightening, um, you know, uh, of lending standards by banks. Uh, this isn't exactly a surprise. We had estimated that the response of banks after March would be to curtail lending and build up their own balance sheet liquidity, uh, and that that would deliver tightening that's roughly the equivalent of, you know, call it 100 to 200 basis points of rate hikes. So on balance, it seems to us that the economy is pretty healthy, but the healthy economy coupled with the 525 basis points of rate hikes that the Fed has done uh, alongside any additional tightening of lending conditions that's coming from banks' response, uh, all of that should be sufficient to keep the Fed on hold. Uh, so we think we're really roughly here in a 
high rates for a while kind of stage of the game. Um, and it seems like we are headed towards a soft landing scenario. But that scenario is sort of, um, you know, coupled with two-sided, you know, considerable two-sided risks. Um, Epic, uh, the the fact that risks are two-sided is something you have been highlighting for a while. Um, why don't you talk about that a little bit further and, and also sort of defend why you're neutral on wall uh, despite this two-sided risk? Sure. Um, so, Shani, as we just noted, the chances of a soft landing are pretty decent right now. But a soft landing is also a delicate balancing act. So on the one hand, if the, this credit tightening ends up being more severe, we could be actually facing higher recession risks next year. On the other hand, if the cumulative rate hikes so far prove insufficient to contain inflation, there could actually be more hikes needed. So this is kind of the two-sided risk that we've been speaking of. And this has actually been showing up in the options markets. So basically what the options markets are showing us, or I guess pricing in, it's sort of a trimodal distribution with significant weights being attached to hiking scenario, easing scenario, or a Fed that could be on hold. It's basically everything could happen. And this is this actually creates a perfect mix for high jump risk and elevated delivered volatility, which is what we've been getting, especially in the past couple of weeks. But that is only half of the story. The other half is a Fed pause could cause investors to recognize that even if rates are choppy, they will ultimately be range-bound. And this could, in turn, lead to more selling of volatility by frequent delta hedgers. And that could actually pressure implied lower. So in the, you have sort of two balancing act risks, right? You have a high delivery volatility on one hand, and then you have implies that could be pressured lower because Fed could be on hold. So for this reason, we're neutral on volatility just because the gains from elevated delivered volatility can be offset by falling implies. However, I have to say, like, there are exceptions to this view. For instance, we still like long Vega positions or long volatility positions in the so-called bottom right of the vol grid, by which I mean structures like 10-year expiries on 10-year tails. These structures tend to perform well as the Fed slides into an on-hold stance, partly also in part because of the attractive slide on that part of the surface. But... Shrini, this week's volatility was less about Fed policy and more about Treasury supply. What do you think the implications are for swap spreads and swap curve? Yeah, um, it's not often that we focus on supply as much as we kind of did last week. Um, rise in yields uh, and the steepening of the curve last week did seem to be catalyzed by Treasury's refunding announcement, which did come in higher than expectations. Um, but we think the bear steepening of the curve is probably um, too much to be properly explained by higher supply, or, or I should say the, the steepening going into like Thursday of last week, you know, which is when we had the bulk of the steepening. We think that is too much steepening relative to what can be explained by, by supply expectations. Um, and perhaps the best way to see this is to look at the 10s, 30s curve, which is usually... Um, you know, it, usually it shows very little sensitivity to shifts in duration supply expectations. Um, but this part of the curve actually steepened by, you know, call it 10 to 12 basis points last week. 
Um, and it tells us that, you know, supply might have been the proximate cause, but not really the true sort of reason behind last week's moves, uh, which we think was probably more to do with technicals and position unwinds. So long story short, we really don't think these trends can persist, uh, which is why we've recommended fading it. Um, you know, our preferred strategy for fading these has been things like, you know, strategies like two sevens, flatteners, um, you know, tactical flatteners that are actually hedged with a small long in the reds um, to account for any possible shifts in, you know, policy rate expectations. Um, with swap spreads, I think it's a little more nuanced. Uh, you know, we think swap spreads should, in fact, narrow, meaning treasuries should cheapen relative to swaps going forward. Uh, but we think that's actually more to do with sort of the demand side of the equation than supply. Um, swap spreads react to shifts in duration supply expectations um, rather than nominal supply expectations. Um, but these supply shifts are usually very gradual and um, very hard to pinpoint, actually. Um, so, for example, even though last week Treasury told us that supply is likely to be heavier than we expected, we don't actually think that will translate into coupon issuance that's much higher than our, um, you know, already sort of rising coupon issuance forecast. So what we really think is that bank demand, you know, for treasuries is likely to be weak. Uh, and that probably leaves bond funds as marginal buyers of treasuries, but inflows into bond funds appear to have slowed and are coming in well below our expectations. So, so it seems like the demand side of the picture is a little weaker and, and, in our minds, that's the bigger sort of factor behind our, um, you know, swap spread narrowing view. Um, that said, um, Epic, this might be a good time to talk about the continuing sort of buildup of the the TGA and what that means for our forecast of the Fed's balance sheet liabilities. You know, things like reserves and RRP balances. Of course, um, as our listeners probably know, the Treasury's cash balance or the TGA has already risen to about 450 billion as of last Wednesday, since the debt ceiling was increased in June. Actually, it was slightly higher earlier last month, but it had come down to 450 last week. But it's on its way to something like 750 by year end. Since the TGA is on the liability side of the Fed balance sheet, other liabilities will have to decline to offset this rise in the TGA, as well as to absorb ongoing reductions in the Fed's balance sheet as part of QT. Initially, we had thought that it would be the reserves that would take the bulk of this hit, and RRP would remain somewhat sticky. But this has actually not proven to be the case, perhaps because bank demand for reserves has simply risen after the events of March. And banks are just finding new ways to grow their own cash balances. So all in all, we now expect reserves and RRP to decline or fall in roughly equal measure by about, call it, $350 billion by year end, while the Fed's balance sheet declines by $400 billion and the TGA rises by another $300 billion from here. But I guess maybe this is as macro as it gets. So shifting gears from macro to the micro, Shrini, why don't you take a few minutes to discuss our correlation-based relative value trading strategies in the swaptions markets? Yeah, um, it does you know, feel a little micro to be talking about trading correlation, uh, but maybe we should actually begin with uh, you know, the motivation and sort of the, the, the high-level view for this. Um, basically, as the hacking cycle comes to a close, um, the, the period of 
big trends in rates and curve uh, will also come to a close and trading teams will sort of have to become more adapted, uh, you know, shifting to themes that are more appropriate for a, for a range bound rate regimes. Um, in rates and curve, you know, that could mean carry trades, which tend to do well when the Fed is on hold. Um, the, but what about the options markets? Um, so in the options markets, um, you know, we know from historical experience that one thing uh, we can tell is that correlations tend to increase uh, across the curve in Fed on hold periods. Um, this could form the basis of a trading strategy or a trading theme for such periods. Uh, but trading correlation in the traditional sense requires investors to use sort of a more exotic bivariate instrument like a yield curve spread option or something like that. But what about, you know, investors who can only use options? Um, you know, we asked ourselves, you know, is there a way they can use um, trading strategies that are somehow designed to benefit from a rise in correlation? Uh, and it turns out there is a way. Um, you can rely on the fact that the yield curve is roughly sort of two-dimensional, meaning two factors are sufficient to explain most of the variation in the curve. And if you start from that as a premise, uh, then in, you know, like, for example, what that might say is that, you know, given, you know, rate changes in the front end, like twos and, and, and the belly of the curve, like tens, are roughly sufficient to explain movements in the curve elsewhere, like maybe the thirties or something like that. Um, uh, but if that sort of a relationship exists between rates, it does translate into uh, 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 an analogous relationship between volatilities on twos, tens, and some other point of the curve. And we can use that to say, um, you know, a collection of three different swaption volatilities actually tells us something about correlation between two of the forward yields in the triad. Uh, this is perhaps not the best place to go into much more detail, but we use this insight to, to sort of develop a trading strategy to, um, you know, to track correlation using only swaptions. And we discuss this in more detail in our weekly publication where, you know, the interested reader can find, um, you know, sort of more details. Um, well, Ipek, I think uh, we've probably covered a lot of ground here. So uh, let's leave it here. Um, thank you so much for having this uh, discussion with me today and sharing your thoughts on this topic. And thank you to all our listeners uh, tuning into this podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, JP Morgan's global research podcast series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read the JP Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on the 8th of August, 2023.